6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Careless behavior among those of the world will only convince them that we do not ourselves really believe the tremendous truths that we would pass on to them. But here's the term, redeeming the time. Oh, boy. That's the most inelastic thing you have. You understand the economic terms of elasticity? Elasticity in something means its, it's, it's availability varies by price. It's very elastic. Something that's inelastic, you can't change it by raising the price. That's all there is. There's, just a, there's a limitation to it. Well, the most perishable inventory you have is time. The 10 minutes that just went by are unredeemable. They're gone for good. Time is not redeemable in the sense of, you know, as an economist might measure it, so to speak. You're saying redeeming the time, make every second count, is what he's trying to say here. But see, that's a commercial term. The faithful steward exploits an opportunity when he encounters one. We should be making the very most of every opportunity in the time short. That's what I believe will be, that to me is what the tears are all about in heaven. As we realize, wow, what we might have done if we hadn't wasted that week or that this or that. And it'll be time. It won't be dollars. It won't be other kinds of things. I think the most uh, desperately missed thing will be Opportunity in the sense of time. Time is short. Now the question is, do you really understand how short it is? Ooh. How many weekends do you believe you have left? Boy, I got a lot of strange looks, huh? <laughs> how many weekends? See, wasting time can be the most expensive opportunities going to waste. Now, how many weekends? You say, that's kind of funny. If I ask, if you think in your mind, well, I've got my insurance agent will show me the actuarial tables. I've got probably 20 years left. That's academic. That doesn't rattle when you shake it. That's sort of a concept. See, it's an abstraction lacking tangibleness or palpability. Instead of 20 years, suppose you say, well, I guess I have 1,000 weekends left. Ouch! About the same thing. Figure In round figures, you've got 50 weeks a year. Okay, 20 years, you're talking, you know. Wait a minute. Wow. That's a little different. You know, when, when, when your girls were in, in uh, high school or something, you made paperclip chains. How many days till prom? And every time a day went by, you took a paperclip. You, you, you counted the, day, the days to, to Christmas vacation or to the prom. Or we, we, when we were young, we were watching that, you know. We didn't understand when we were young that life was like a roll of paper. It goes faster near the end, huh? Thousand weekends, that pinches us. I was on a, I was dealing with a, uh, a board member once, and I told, uh, 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 Bernie, uh, how, uh, how much time you got left? 
about a thousand weekends, isn't it? He looked at me shocked. Well, what do you, you, 20 years? No, 30, isn't that about a thousand, they call it a thousand weekends. And many years later, I ran into him at an airport. And he walked up to me and, what do you think it is, Chuck? Maybe about 900 now? <laughs> he remembered that conversation and he, 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 he put it into his estimate into weekends. I thought it was pretty good. So how many weekends do you have left? That makes it sort of pinched, doesn't it? Whatever the number is. Obviously, it's different for all of us. At least in our, in our terms of our estimates. You know, it might be one week, and you never know what's going to come. Sufficient of the day is evil era. But, but uh, still, okay. So let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man with salt. That's a, uh, a seasoned with salt. That's a condiment of conversation. The preservative power of faithfulness is what's here. Did you realize salt was added to the sacrifice in Leviticus 2? Interesting. An example, I think, to us. Anyways, you follow Christ through the Gospels, notice that he had no stereotype form or formula methods of dealing with souls. He met each individual case with its unique needs. In a Jewish, in a Jewish synagogue, he reasoned as a rabbi would. When he writes the letter to the, to the Hebrews, he knows the animosity they feel towards him. He doesn't sign it. And he argues from things that they had already committed themselves to. It's built entirely on certain specific Old Testament examples. He builds the whole case on that. They knew who he was. The reader understood who he was. He can prove that for the statement. So that was his Jewish approach. At the Oropagus, at the, at the Mars Hill, among the Athenian philosophers, he was a master of rhetoric and Greek thought and literature. He quotes from three different Greek poets, not the Old Testament. These are Athenians. And he quotes from uh, 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 literature that they were aware of, makes his point from them. And uh, so he knew, how he, to a Greek, he was a Greek. He had, he had the benefit of the best Greek schooling. And he also, to a Jew, he had the best rabbinical schooling from Gamaliel himself. So he was whatever, he met them on their ground, so to speak, addressing the idolaters of Laconia. He met them on their own ground. He appealed from nature to nature's God, seeking to turn them from their vanities and draw their hearts to the creator of all things. It's in our book, Alien Encounters. If you go to a bookstore and look for it in a Christian, you won't find it there because it was designed to look like a New Age book. They have some out there. You can examine the outside. You'll discover that I was going to have an astronaut. There were 13 different astronauts that had UFO experiences on their thing. I was going to have one of them. And I had a better idea. I had Doug Marr do the foreword. Now, you may not know who he is, but every New Ager does. Publishers Weekly attributes the, the, the New Age publishing craze to Doug Marr's book, A Voyage to the New World. He was the channeler for Shirley MacLaine. Now, what they don't know, they all know his name. All the New Agers know his name. What they don't know is the 9th of November of 1990, he became a Christian. Became a good friend, and I had him do the foreword. I said, no, don't, don't go too far. I, I want to, you know, don't let them realize you're a Christian. I don't want that in the foreword. If you want to read the, books, the book reviews on Amazon.com, there are 17 of them. 15 are favorable. Don't bother with those. The ones you want to read are the ones that are really angry. This one guy is so angry, he says, I had to read nine chapters before discovering this was a Christian book. <laughs> 
that the hook was in, you know. That weird book has brought more people to Christ because it's the kind of book you can give to an unsaved relative at Christmas. You know, it's not a Christian look. It's, ooh, that's weird. You know, okay, yes, it is weird. Anyway, okay. Okay, now we get into the closing salutations of the letter. Paul made friends, by the way. Do you realize there's over a hundred different Christians that are named or alluded to in the book of Acts and in his letters? Over a hundred. There's over 26 in Romans chapter 16 alone. He could attract people. You know, if I could remember names, I could be a pastor. But I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, that's something. Paul says, all my state shall Tychicus declare unto you he who is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Wow! Beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. What a guy. He's among the seven that accompanied Paul when he left Ephesus in Acts 20. He was a pastor of the church. In, he was a pastor of the church at Ephesus. The, Ephesus turned that whole world upside down for a lot of reasons. But Tychicus was certainly a, a sharp guy. These men were helping Paul deliver the love offering from the Gentile churches to the poor saints in Judea, and, and alluded to in several cases. And he and Onesimus delivered the Ephesian letter. So it so, so declares at the end of that letter. And they both deliver the Colossian letter, as we see in the next few, this in the next few uses, as well as the letter to Philemon about his runaway slave Onesimus. And he would send Tychicus to, to Crete and then to Ephesus subsequently. He was evidently one whom the apostle had complete confidence in, beloved and faithful. How rare that is. Many people we may like, but you can you really trust him all the way? Well, here's one you could. Precious guy. And it's rare to find someone that's faithful to the truth, and yet at the same time, caring and sensitive personally. Those are two different things. Both valuable, but different things. Whom I have sent unto you, he says to the Colossians, for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. And with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. And they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. They'll give you a full report. Onesimus is quite a character, a runaway slave. Stole from his guy. Then gets converted. He's with Paul. And Paul sends him back to what could be death, but with a letter from Paul saying, hey, Philemon, you owe me big time. So whatever you have, put it on my account. And there's this little letter, when you understand it, precious little letter. But it also, in addition to be a touching personal thing, the way Paul deals with it, it's also a lesson on intercession. All the elements of what intercession should really be is right there. Onesimus. Faithful and beloved. You've got to study that. And uh, so, it also something I didn't realize, came across it in John Knox's writings, that Onesimus, uh, who's the subject of the Philemon letter, uh, has been, uh, some people believe he was the collector of the Pauline corpus of letters. He got copies of all, that's how, that's how they got collected. It was the practice of those churches to exchange letters, because they were considered so precious. They'd copy them and change them. And Onesimus apparently is one of those that collected them all, and one reason we have so many of them. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, strange phrase. What is a fellow prisoner? It sounds like someone's in prison with him, and it may be voluntarily, we're not sure. My fellow prisoner, uh, salute you, and Marcus, sister son to Barnabas, Touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. Strange thing, but you need to understand some background here. 
I'll get to Marcus in a minute. The, the fellow prisoner, is, he's a Thessalonian who accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey in Acts 19 and 20. At the uproar in Ephesus, he endangered his own life on behalf of the gospel. And uh, so he sailed with Paul to Rome, which means he also experienced the storm and shipwreck in Acts 27 that uh, Luke describes so graphically. In fact, Luke describes so much maritime detail in Acts 27 that it was possible from that text to find the anchors that were cut loose. And they're on display at the, the, the uh, Marine uh, Museum at, at Malta. And, so, and he's also called a fellow worker, by the way, in Philemon. But okay. His name seems to suggest upper class, aristocrat, who apparently renounced his place of the world to become a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Marcus is quite a character. It's gratifying to see that he made peace with Paul because he uh, was a nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas means son of consolation or encouragement. We're all instructed to be Barnabases, by the way. Did you know that? Yeah, okay. And, uh, but many years before, Marcus was the cause of a serious confrontation between Paul and Barnabas. They were heading up into Galatia, and, Barnabas, uh, and Mark dropped out. That's, that's rough country. He didn't want any part of that. And so Paul was really upset about that. And uh, at the completion of that evangelistic tour to, in Cyprus, that's all in Acts 12, Paul lost confidence in John Mark because he was leaving the work and re returned to his mother in Jerusalem. He apparently was a very rich, spoiled kid. Some people believe that he was the one that ran nude out of Gethsemane as a kid. And uh, those are all possibilities, and you don't have to take sides in some of those scholastic debates, but there are those that have that view. Anyway, Barnabas was anxious to give Mark a second chance, and Paul was adamant, no way. This guy proved to be unreliable, I suspect, is basically the attitude there. And he ultimately made good, though, and became a trusted companion to Peter. He becomes the amanuensis for Peter. The gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. And uh, so, uh, uh, so he subsequently became endeared to all, and he makes his peace with Paul, too. And that's what this starts to show. Paul endorses him here and implies that there were some that still harbored doubts here. And we just need to remind God is not finished with any of us yet. Okay, so Mark has apparently been reinstated, so to speak. He's mentioned in Philemon 24, and Paul requests Timothy to bring Mark with him. So Mark's got his spurs back. Okay. Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these, are, these only are my fellow workers in, under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort to me. Jesus, which is now a name above every name, was then a common Hebrew name, Yehoshua, or Joshua. And here we have the brother with a Roman surname, which has a reputation for integrity. How refreshing. And uh, you can make some other comparisons. That's fine. Okay. The manner in which Paul utilizes these brethren suggests that gift and grace do not necessarily go together. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you and is always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. We've discussed him earlier in the first chapter of this epistle. It was his efforts that founded the church at Colossae. Paul had never been there, but his convert, Epaphras, started church, and Epaphras came to Paul asking him to write this letter to the church because they had problems. And so it was his visit that precipitates the letter. It's also significant that he's a prayer warrior. Not surprising, certainly significant. 
Paul says, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Those are three cities that are very close to each other. Oh, they're only a few miles apart. And all three churches were Paul's burden, even though he had not visited any of them. Zeal is a key part of prayer. Rituals are not. Zeal is. Remember, Paul used the term agony back there in chapter 2, you may recall. And then that are in Laodicea. Laodicea was Christ's last word. In the seven letters that Christ left us from the churches, it was the final one. And one of the few, one of the only two that had nothing good to say about their church. And in the seven letters, seven, very, by the way, in the book of Revelation, which is an incredible piece of work, but the most important part of that climactic book of the Bible is chapter 2 and 3. The rest of it's interesting. I encourage you to study it. But don't worry about it. But chapters 2 and 3 are essential. Under, really make a careful study of those seven letters. Because that's the, that's the part we're participating in. All seven. Not just Laodicea. All seven of them. But uh, I encourage you to do that. It's a terrific, terrific study. And uh, Laodicea is Christ's last word, and it's His word to us today. And one of the reasons that Colossians is so important to us, because they are like sister cities in a sense. Then he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Dr. Luke, what a precious guy. He was not mentioned among the three that were of the circumcision. In other words, he wasn't Jewish. That's why we, this is one of the reasons we assume that he is a Gentile, a, a doctor, but a slave. All, all were, all, he seems to have been a Gentile. There are traditions that he may have been among the 70 in Luke 10, or that he may have been the other disciple on the Emmaus road, but those are just traditions. Some suspect he was also the man that appears in Acts 16. He, uh, he, uh, Paul is, has a dream calling him to Europe, going across. There's a man that has come over. He goes over there. He's over there very shortly, and the they become we in the Greek. And people believe that's, that's where Luke joins Paul and, and stays with him for his career. And Demas greet you. Now, that's pathetic to compare verse 14 with 2 Timothy 4. Because when Paul first mentioned Demas, he called him a fellow worker. Here, he simply says, and Demas. This may indicate that Paul didn't, wasn't really sure about him at this time. Demas and Luke seem to have been intimately associated. They are bound together here and also in the Philemon letter. However, in Paul's second imprisonment, we learn that the love of the world had been too much for Demas. So you can almost, in those three instances, trace his, his decay, if you will. Salute the brethren that are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. Nymphus. The apostle's salutation here is a threefold one. To the brethren that are in Laodicea, that is, in effect, to the whole community of that city. To Nymphus, whoever he is, and we'll come back to that. And to the church that's in his house. There's three different references here. Now, Nymphus could be a person both of Christian character and generous feeling of some amount of wealth because his, the church is in his house, and that's non-trivial because it's a large group. Nothing more is known regarding him, and this is the only passage in which he's made, but there's more to it than that. Whether it's Nymphus or Nympha depends on which manuscript you're looking at. And if it's a Nympha, then it's a Christian lady that we're dealing with here, a person of outstanding worth and importance in the Church of Laodicea, obviously. 
for he or she had granted the use of his dwelling house for the ordinary weekly meetings of the church. So someone of apparent substance here. But several manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and, other, and the uh, Ephraim uh, uh, Receptus manuscripts read, quote, which is in their house. The Vaticanus manuscript has her house, making Nymphus a woman. So there's scholastic debate on that, for whatever that may lead to. And indeed, so near were they that Paul directs that the epistle to the Colossians be read, also Laodicea. They're to exchange. And that, that's practically dynamic, but it's also another indication that the Holy Spirit is regarding those two as crisscrossed, as together. So what's said about Laodicea may, in effect, seems to be valid for uh, the Colossians also. And so this fact that the church met there uh, also indicates that Nephthys was a person of some means. A small house could not accommodate the Christian men and women on every day of the week for the purpose of Christian fellowship. And the church, it's interesting to realize that everything you see in the book of Acts occurred in homes. That's something to really understand. That's where it all started. That's where it's going to end. That's where I've seen, in the 50 years, I've been aggressively, more than 50 years, uh, a Christian studying. The place I've seen people grow is in homes, small groups. Groups small enough where people can ask questions without embarrassment, and yet enough to hold each other accountable to some degree. That's where people grow. Not by listening to a 40-minute sermon every Sunday morning. Not that you should abandon that, don't misunderstand me. But you need more than that, or you'll starve spiritually. Need, I encourage you to find a small group that meets during the week, not just meets during the week, to study the Bible during the week. And you can see the whole home church kind of idea all through the scriptures. It wasn't until the third century that separate buildings were used when it became a state religion and the pastors were on the state payroll, different environment. That also led to some strange doctrinal twists too, as you can probably predict. But even today, it's my opinion, my perception, that people grow in small study groups during the week. And uh, not surprised. That's one reason we have the Institute. The best way is to be face-to-face -face a small group that meets face-to-face, -face, but there are some alternatives, and we'll talk a little bit about that after I finish the letter here. Paul says, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And some presume that that may actually be the epistle to what we call the epistle of the Ephesians, which does not have that in the title. It does in some manuscripts, but it's not in others. So that's a speculation. The, all the apostolic letters were circulated. And by the way, let me remind you, Peter calls them Scripture. So you, you, you're not crawling out on a limb regarding it as sacred. They were so deemed by the apostles themselves, the eyewitnesses. And so anyway, these letters were circulated by obviously manually copying. That's why they're called manuscripts. They were handwritten copies. There's a fascinating connection between Laodicea as the end time church and the epistle of Colossians is the antidote to the problems. The Colossian letter is the antidote to the problems in Laodicea and, and so on. There are 34 words that are unique to Colossians. And, and, and common to the Laodicea thing. In the beginning of the creation of God is a strange construction that occurs in Laodicea, letter, in Laodicea letter and here. I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne. These are uh, uh, expressions that are common to both. And so some suspect that the letter from Laodicea may have been our epistle of the Ephesians, a circular letter to the other churches in the Roman proconsular Asia, reaching Colossae from Laodicea. 
But that's, again, a subject of scholastic discussion. And say to Archippus, that, uh, Archippus the, uh, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Interesting. He's also mentioned in the Philemon letter, by the way, possibly his son and the pastor of the church that met in his home. But anyways, apparently he was ministering at Colossae, but with a tendency not uncommon today, he was settled down comfortably and taking things easily. That's the hint here, that he should take heed to the ministry which you received, that thou fulfill it. And uh, so, propness, energy, sense of urgency is important in our spiritual work as well as everywhere else. Your work ethic matters. Okay. So how about us? Are we comfortable? Are we kicked back and enjoying a respite? Or are we, do we have our sleeves rolled up and at it? One day, each one of us are going to have to give our boss, the big boss, an accounting. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Now, you can almost, as you listen to this letter, you can almost hear the clank of the chains about him. He is a prisoner. But Paul signed this. It's very typical to have an amanuensis, a secretary, do the writing, especially for Paul for reasons I'll get to in a minute. But what's interesting, he personally signs this, and he also puts his trademark on it. One of the things that Paul regarded as his unique, almost secret mark he always finished his letters with grace be with you. It may come as a surprise, there is no other epistle writer of the New Testament that did that. The word grace appears only once elsewhere. It happens to be by Peter, but in a different context. That's quite a surprise. And in the Thessalonian letter, he uses that as proof it's from him because there's a forgery being circulated that's, current, that's, current, you know, that's a, causing all the trouble that led to the second, I often call it first and third Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians was a, trade, a, fall, a forgery being circulated. That the third letter, as I call it, we call it second Thessalonians, was a response to that forgery. And Paul makes it clear by putting that and signing it personally that they know it's from him. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 